Turn with me at this time to the book of Mark, chapter 12. Again, that is the book of Mark, chapter 12. Last Sunday, when we were gathered, we looked at chapter 11, verse 27, through to chapter 12, verse 12. And I just want to draw your attention briefly, yet again, to what the Lord Jesus says in verses 10 and 11 of the 12th chapter. Have you not read this scripture? What scripture? He's quoting from the book of Psalms, chapter 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Last Sunday, I summed up uh, that quotation, the words of the Lord Jesus, as follows. Man's rejection of Christ becomes the means of man's reconciliation to God. Let me repeat it. Man's rejection of Christ actually becomes the means of man's reconciliation to God. It is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? Uh, When we think of the gospel, when we think of the good news, what we are referring to is simply this. God saves sinners. Listen to these words closely and carefully. God saves sinners from His wrath for His glory through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. Let me repeat it. It is clear. It is concise. Please make no mistakes about it. The good news of salvation, the good news of the gospel is this. God saves sinners from what? His wrath. To what? For His glory. How? Through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. We can actually break it down in four very simple parts. Uh, The first part is this. God saves sinners. We in this room are sinners. Uh, By nature, we are sinful. And we sin throughout life against God. Because we are sinners, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot better ourselves. We cannot fix ourselves. One preacher has said, man as sinner hates God, hates man, and hates himself. He would kill God if he could. That's Calvary's cross. He does kill his fellow man when he can, maybe not physically, but certainly with the tongue. And he commits spiritual suicide every day of his life. We are sinners by nature, riddled with our sin. Here is the good news. God saves sinners. We cannot save ourselves. Imagine the following scenario. Uh, You own a famous work of art going back two, three, four centuries. And you display it there in your home. And on one particular evening, you invite over a number of guests, and they're visiting with you. And while you're not looking, while you're not paying any attention, though you should have been, 
uh, one of these guests takes a black marker and scribbles all over that famous priceless piece of art. When the guest, when your displeasure registers with the guest, the guest goes to a magazine, cuts out a picture, grabs some glue, and sticks it to that work of art, and then tells you, look, as good as new. What's your reaction? First of all, you question his mental health, don't you? 911, you've got a crazy man in your house. But secondly, you assure him that there is absolutely nothing he can now do to restore that work of art. It is ruined. He has ruined it. It is now beyond his ability to rectify it. Friends, that's you and me. We are marred and scarred by sin. And our condition is helpless and hopeless. We cannot do anything to remedy it. We cannot do anything to better ourselves, to improve ourselves, to fix ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. This is the first part of the gospel. God. God saves sinners. second part is this. He saves sinners from what? His, his wrath. He doesn't save you from your problems. He doesn't save you from your illness, necessarily. He doesn't save you from a poor financial condition. He doesn't save you from aches and pains. He saves you from himself. Do you understand that? The gospel is this. God saves sinners from God. God saves sinners from his wrath. Paul tells us, Romans chapter 2, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We're storing it up. Because we're sinners and we sin daily against God, we are storing up, we are accumulating, we are gathering His displeasure, His wrath. It's like a dam. And you picture that dam in the river, and it rains one day, it rains the next day, and it continues to rain week, week in, week out. And the water gathers, and the water gathers, and it gathers. And eventually the dam breaks, and the water surges forth. That is what Paul is warning us. You are storing up for yourself wrath. But here's the gospel. God saves sinners from his wrath. There's a third part to that definition. God saves sinners from his wrath for his glory. Now, we can understand that in a couple of ways. Yes, it's true to say he he saves us for his glory. That is a, as a, as a manifestation, a wonderful display of his love and his mercy and his kindness. That is true. It's not particularly what I have in view here. When I say that he saves us for his glory, what I mean is this. He saves us so that we might enjoy his glory. He saves us so that we can behold the beauty of his glory. He saves us so that we can be satisfied in his incomprehensible greatness and we can be satisfied in his incomprehensible goodness. But now there's a fourth part. You know that if you've been paying attention. God saves sinners from his wrath for his glory. Here's the question. How? Through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. And so as Jesus Christ The God-man, he who was and is fully God and fully man, is suspended upon Calvary's cross. God's wrath falls on Jesus. And God punishes Jesus so that he might forgive you. God condemns Jesus, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
so that he might justify you. That is the gospel. That is the wonder of what the Lord Jesus is affirming there. Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. The stone, that's him. He's referring to himself. The stone that the builders, the Jewish leaders, rejected. How did they reject him? It's his crucifixion. It's his rejection. But what has he become? He has become the cornerstone. He has become the foundation of a new edifice, a new temple, a new building. He has become the foundation of a new covenant people, the church. And guess what? Verse 11. This was the Lord's doing. We never could have imagined such a thing. And it is simply marvelous in our eyes. That's the gospel. So do you believe, friend? That's the gospel. You've heard it. I don't know how to state it in any more simple terms than that. That God saves sinners. That's the starting point. We must come to a full recognition of what exactly we are in God's sight. He saves us from His wrath. He saves us for His glory. And he does so through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And now he commands all men in all places to repent and to believe the gospel. This is the Lord's doing. And it is wonderful in our eyes. Now we pick up the narrative. Still in chapter 12, we come to today's text. Verse 13, and I'm only going to read just a little little chunk this morning. I'm only going to read as far as verse 17. That's as far as we have to go because it is a unit. It conveys a thought, and there is a central message. certainly is. And so look at what Mark writes beginning in verse 13. This is the word of God. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now climb back up to the 13th verse. And they. And so here Mark uses the third person plural. They. Who's he referring to? He's still talking about those men who were in view in the preceding text. Chiefly, the priests, the scribes, and the elders. They have come to the Lord Jesus. They have found him walking in the temple. And they have come to challenge his authority. Why? Because he has challenged their authority. On the previous day, he appeared in the temple. He cleared out the temple. He cleansed it of all those merchants. He overthrew the chairs and the tables. And so doing, he was challenging the authority of the priests and the scribes and the elders because they were the appointed rulers of the temple. And so when he says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves, he is addressing that word of condemnation to whom? These men, they know it. They've been publicly humiliated. The next day they find him. We're going to have it out. And they challenge his authority. But again, the Lord Jesus wonderfully turns the tables. And through through a penetrating parable, he unmasks them. And shows to the crowds that these are the men who have rejected the prophetic witness. And it is now culminating in their rejection of him, the Son of God. He unmasks them for who and what they really are. 
And he challenges again, undermines their authority. And he publicly humiliates them yet again. They do not surrender. They retreat like dogs with their tails between their legs. The next day they're going to regroup and they're going to come after him again. But for now, what do they do? We read it there in the 13th verse. They get some of their number, the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, and they send these men to Jesus. Four questions. Four questions. If we just ask and try to simply answer these questions, we'll be faithful to the text and understand exactly what is going on here and understand the meaning of the text. Friend, if you're visiting, understand this. We believe in objective truth here at Grace Community Church. We do not open this book and say, how does this make me feel? Or what is my opinion on this? You should not care less. You shouldn't care less what my opinion is on this text. You shouldn't care less how this text makes me feel. All we are concerned with is objective reality and objective truth. The text has a meaning. We want the meaning of the text and then apply it by the Spirit of God to our condition today. And so the meaning, I think we unpack it, we get at the heart of it by just tossing out there four very simple questions. Question number one is obvious. Who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? Verse 13. These are the guys, these are the boys that the scribes, the elders, and and, and the others, they they, they gather together from among their number. These two groups designated Pharisees and Herodians. Who are these men? To understand that, to answer that question, we need to know a little bit of history. Just dabble in history very briefly. You go back three centuries before the time of the Lord Jesus. So you're maybe the 3rd century, 4th century B.C., way back in time. There is an empire, the Greek Empire. A man named Philip of Macedonia, he has united all of the Greek city-states. He dies, his son, by the name of Alexander, known to us as Alexander the Great. He begins to take those Greek armies and he moves eastward and he goes all the way to India, engulfing the Middle East, engulfing Israel. He has a policy. The policy is known as Hellenization. In other words, all the people whom Alexander conquers, he wants to turn them into little Greeks. He wants to spread the Greek language. He wants to spread Greek literature. He wants to spread Greek religion, Greek philosophy, Greek law, Greek system of governments. This is known as a policy of Hellenization. Well, when the Greeks institute this policy in Israel, you can imagine the reaction. Some people were all for it. They embraced it. This is great. Other people hated it, absolutely despised it. That divide is fairly well represented in Jesus' day by the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees are the old guard. They represent that group that want nothing to do with Hellenization. You'll never hear me speaking Greek, and you'll never catch me reading Plato. I want nothing to do with it. They are anti-Hellenization, the old order. The Herodians, they are pro-Hellenization. These two groups hate each other. They despise each other. They are always at each other's necks. But now the scribes and the elders and the priests, they send representatives from these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. We can understand that, can't we? We can sort of understand the animosity between these two groups. Because in our own day, in our own generation, in the past few decades, we have witnessed a, a, a significant social transformation here in the United States of America. However you describe it, Republican, Democrat, middle, uh, coastal, 
however you want to describe it, conservative, liberal, there is an extreme polarization within this nation today, isn't there? Many who look backwards, others look ahead. Many who want to go back, many who want change. And there is, there is, there is this increasing polarization. I'm not commenting on the significance of this, nor the merit of other positions. It doesn't interest me. What I want you to understand is to enter into, though, the animosity between these two groups. You need look no further than the animosity and the polarization that exists within our society today. You had exactly the same thing in Israel's day. And they were represented by these two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees. Pro-Hellenization, anti-Hellenization. Question number two is this. Why do they approach Jesus? It's right there in the 13th verse. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Why? Why do they send them to him? To trap him in his talk. In other words, they want to make him say something he'll regret. They want to back him into a corner, catch him between a rock and a hard place, force him to utter some sort of a statement that will discredit him before the people. Not only discredit him before the people, but something that they can, they can then use to levy some sort of legal accusation against him. They seek to trap him. Now, what I want you to catch, what I want you to notice is this. The Pharisees and the Herodians hate, I mean hate, each other. We cannot overstate it. As far as each group is concerned, the other, they are the scum of the earth. They will have nothing to do with one another. And yet here we see them holding hands. Here we see them coming together for one big group hug. Why? Because their hatred of the Lord Jesus is far greater than their hatred of one another. They lay aside all that divides and separates and differentiates them. Why? Because they are united in a common cause. What? Their hatred of Jesus and their determination to trap him in his talk. Third question is this. What is their strategy? What is their strategy? And at this point, a slide is going to come up on the back, on the screen behind me. I have a little video camera down here, so let me just take a glimpse and see if it's come up yet. It's of a map. There you have it, the Greek Empire. What is their strategy? Well, to understand their strategy, again, we need to delve into history. What they basically do is they come to the Lord Jesus with a, with a question. It seems to be a harmless question. It seems to be morally neutral. I mean, what's the big deal? But they come to him and they put the question to him in verse 14. After these words of flattery, teacher, we know that you are true. They're lying and do not care about anyone's opinion. They come to him lies, these lies of flattery, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, here's the question they want to trap him in. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? History, we need to understand history. Not just the Greeks, you go back before the Greeks. God brought Israel as a nation. He established a theocracy, a nation, a government, a religion with him as its head. He brought Israel into the land, into the promised land. He appointed kings to rule and reign over Israel. That theocracy ended in the northern kingdom in the year 722, 722 BC, when the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom. It continued in Judah in the southern kingdom until 586 
when the Assyrian Empire fell to the Babylonian Empire and Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Well, after Babylon, Babylon was replaced by Persia. The Babylonian Empire came out of what we would call today as modern-day Iraq. And the Babylonian Empire was destroyed, overrun by the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire came out of what we would know to today as Iran. And Persia then controlled the entire region and dominated Israel. And then Persian went all the way through Turkey and came up against the Greeks. And as I already mentioned, under Alexander the Great, the Greece then began to push to the east all the way to India. And the Greek Empire usurped the Persian Empire. And then in more or less 60 BC, the Greek Empire fell to the Roman Empire. So for 600 years, over 600 years more or less, there has never again been a national king over Israel. The theocracy has been left in shambles. The theocracy has been decimated. And in 6, was it A.D., Rome began to appoint the very rulers, representatives over Israel, and they required in 6 AD, I believe was the year, that the Israelites each and every year paid a poll tax known as the denarius. Now do you see how loaded this question is? Behind this question, there resides six centuries of history. Gentile domination. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. We are a theocratic nation. We are God's nation. Our yearning is again for God's king. Now here's the question we have for you, Master. They come to him with those words of flattery. We know you speak the truth. We know you reveal the way. Here's our question, very simple. Should we pay the tax or shouldn't we? It is a loaded question. The Pharisees are hoping that he will say yes. Because if he says yes, they will accuse him of treason and disloyalty to Israel. The Herodians are hoping, just waiting on bated breath, that he will say no. Because then they will accuse him of disloyalty and treason against Rome. Answer this way. Answer that way. We really don't care. Either way, we've got you. We have trapped you in your words. And we will have all we need to to humiliate you and discredit you publicly. The fourth question is this. How does Jesus handle them? Now, another slide is going to come up. There it is. You know what that is? It's a denarius. There are lots of them around. You can buy one for about $2,000 on the Internet, but be careful. You don't get taken. But uh, they've uncovered hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of these coins going back a couple thousand years. Uh, This is a denarius. And so the Lord Jesus, he commands them, bring me a denarius. See, none of them would have had a denarius. They're inside the temple, and a denarius wouldn't have been allowed within the confines of the temple. They would have to have gone outside to get one. So someone goes out, an errand boy, grabs one, comes back in, and the Lord Jesus, he holds up this coin, and he asks a very simple question. Actually, two questions. I want you to identify, firstly, whose likeness, whose image, whose portrait, whose, whose face is on this. That's question number one, whose likeness. Second question I want you to answer is this. Whose inscription? Their answer to both questions is Caesar's. 
And so on the left side, you have a coin and you have a face. That is Caesar, Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor from more or less, was it 17, maybe 12, 13, 14 A.D. to 37, 38 A.D. So in answer to that question, whose, whose likeness is on this coin? They're all looking at him, his face right there. It is Caesar. It is Tiberius. The second thing the Lord Jesus asks them to identify is the inscription. Whose inscription is this? It is Caesar's. Now, on the one side of the coin where you have Tiberius' face, it's the Latin. We're not going to get into it all. It identifies him as Caesar, the son of Augustus. But as you move up the right-hand side, it's the coin on the left, image on the left. As you move up the right-hand side, the last four letters you will find are D-I-V-I. Divi. Any guesses? Divine. Divine. You flip the coin over, this is what you see on the other side. The lady, I think it was Tiberius' mother, she's a symbol of peace. And the words Pontifex Maximus, which mean high priest. High priest. Incidentally, we're not going to go down this rabbit trail, but that's the designation that the Pope claims for himself. High priest. It is a pagan ascription. Pontifex Maximus. And so Jesus asks them. They've asked him a loaded question. He now asks, you can take that slide away, Arthur, thanks. He now asks them a very loaded question. I want you to identify the likeness. Who is it? It's Caesar, Tiberius, son of Augustus. And I want you to identify the inscription. He's asking to identify two things. Yes, it's Caesar's inscription. And what is Caesar actually affirming concerning himself? He is divine. And he is the high priest. They've answered. And now Jesus utters a masterful, completely, just, just there's no other way to describe it, a masterful command. Then render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, and you render unto God the things that belong to God. What is he doing? He's accomplishing three things. First of all, he is silencing, he is absolutely silencing the Herodians. The Lord Jesus, when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he is affirming, yes, Caesar has a measure of political authority. He is the emperor. You are to submit yourself to that political authority. All authority has been appointed by God. Therefore, you are to pay the tax. He silences the Herodians. But with that statement, he also silences the Pharisees. Why? Because in drawing attention to the inscription and Caesar's claim that he is divine and he is the high priest, while acknowledging, yes, Caesar has a measure of political authority which is given to him by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he has spilled that authority into a realm that does not belong nor pertain to him. He has no religious authority. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and you render to God... The things that are God's. The third thing he accomplishes with that statement, that command, is this. He shows their hypocrisy. Absolute hypocrisy. They have put aside their hatred and animosity for one another. They have put aside their differences, very real differences concerning the direction of the country, their views on politics, their views on theology, their relationship to Rome. They have put all of this aside. These things, they are at each other's necks over these things. And they have put it all aside. Why? Because they are united in their hatred 
of the Lord Jesus by drawing attention to the likeness and to the inscription on the coin. The Lord Jesus is reminding them of the very thing that separates them. And he is reminding them, and it is clear to the public, it is clear to the crowds, it is clear to the multitudes, look, you have put aside your significant differences, which I am again highlighting. And the only reason you have put them aside, and the only reason you have dared to ask me such a question, is because you, you, you have your hatred for me. He unmasks them for what they really are. Four answers to four questions. Who are the Pharisees and Herodians? Why do they approach Jesus? What is their strategy? And how does Jesus handle them? There is the text. Now, we take this text and we focus in on its meaning and on its central message, and we have it summed up, encapsulated in that command in verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God... The things that are God's. That is the message of the text. From that message, we can draw five important, significant implications. The fifth and final, the most important. But we're going to work up to it. Implication number one is this. In light of this command, in light of this message, implication number one, lesson number one, and we dare not miss it. With that statement, Jesus dismisses the theocratic state. Catch that. That's a mouthful. I'll explain it. With that single statement, Jesus dismisses, wipes it away, the theocratic state. He acknowledges the emperor as a legitimate authority. He, by commanding the Jews to pay the tax, is commanding them to subject themselves, to submit themselves to the emperor. As far as the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned, he's not only affirming it here, he affirms it throughout his entire ministry. The theocratic kingdom, that kingdom that God established with the nation of Israel, it is over. God has only ever covenanted with one earthly kingdom, one earthly nation, that is the nation of Israel. The theocracy ends with the advent. It ends with those, with those invasions. But the confirmation of its end and its termination occurs at the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a lesson. This is a lesson we dare not miss and we must understand and take to heart. God has never again entered into a national covenant with any earthly nation. Never. We are not theonomists. We are not theocrats. God has never again covenanted with a nation. I will go so far as to say that we must take to heart, and this really does apply for us as Christians in our day, because sadly at times we we can just get sucked into the political realm and we can confuse the agenda of our political party with the kingdom of God. And I dare say, friend, one has absolutely nothing to do with the other. The kingdom of God is not political. It is relational. You need to understand that. The kingdom of God is not national. It is international. The kingdom of God is not tribal. It is global. The theocracy ends with the advent of the Lord Jesus. 
And the Lord Jesus is now building, constructing, edifying a relational kingdom with him and he alone at, at its head. And entrance into this kingdom is obtained how? By surrender to the king. It is surrender through the gospel. Remember as I, as I declared it as we began this morning, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners from his wrath for his glory through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. It is relational. What matters is this. What is my relationship to the king? As the psalmist warns us, it's the voice of God in Psalm chapter 2. It's entirely messianic. Kiss the king lest he become angry. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The theocracy is over. God has never again covenanted with an earthly kingdom. There is no such thing as a theocracy today. There is a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, which is relational. And we enter it only by virtue of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The second implication of that command is this. Jesus affirms the authority of the state, the government, human government. When he commands them to pay the tax, he is affirming the authority of the state. And he is commanding them to submit themselves. We'll get to this a little more in just a moment. He is commanding them to submit themselves to the state. Paul takes us down this road in Romans chapter 13. I dare say Paul had this text in view when he penned Romans chapter 13. He's simply expounding on this singular statement. And there in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, the apostle Paul declares, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Takes us all the way back to the flood. After the flood, God covenants with Noah. And in that covenant with Noah, implicit to that covenant, we have the establishment of human government and the power to judge. And it is and always has been a manifestation of God's general, God's common grace. The state exists for the preservation of law and order. The state exists for the protection of life. And I know this is is mind-blowing, mind-boggling, it really is. Not only does Jesus affirm the authority of the state, He affirms the authority and legitimacy of a pagan state. The Roman Empire. The pagan at the head of that empire. But the state is instituted by God. And it is instituted for this sovereign, glorious, and actually very good purpose. The preservation of human life. The protection of human life. As I think of this country, the country in which we live, I thank God for our laws. I thank God for this country's courts, this country's judges, this country's prisons, this country's sheriffs, and I get a kink in my neck when I say it, even the security checks at the airport, I thank God for it. I've lived in a few places in this world. Believe believe you me, friend, I know at at times it's hard for us to, to swallow this and to accept it. Just about any form of government is better than anarchy. Just about any form of government is better than anarchy. And even a pagan government is a divinely ordained institution for the preservation and protection of human life. And that's why Paul, in his first epistle to Timothy, it's chapter 2, isn't it? He commands us to pray for those who are in authority over us. Why? Not that they will adopt our political agenda. No, why? 
simply that they will do what they've been ordained to do and allow us in peace and quiet and tranquility to pursue all godliness. That's our chief concern. That is our chief priority. With this statement, Jesus affirms the authority of the state. Third implication is this. With this statement, Jesus commands, as I alluded to this already, to submit to the state. You're to pay taxes. Implicit with that command is submission. Paul again develops this in Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. This idea of submitting to the state, those, those, our human governments, those in authority over us. And he gives, he gives two expressions of this submission. The first is precisely what the Lord Jesus says here in the context of Mark chapter 12. We are to pay, we must pay taxes and customs to submit to those in authority over us, to submit to human government, to follow the command of the Lord Jesus in submitting to the state is to pay those taxes and customs which the state requires of us. I'm thankful. I am thankful, so thankful, that people here uh, are committed to driving on the right-hand side of the road. I love it. It's great. Because I've been in places where that's not the case. Open space, you go for it. I'm thankful that the speed limit here on the 56 is 70 miles an hour, not 120, or just go whatever speed you like. I'm thankful there's some restriction. I'm thankful for the one stoplight in Glen Rose, Texas, down here at the corner, although you have to wait 15 seconds sometimes for it to change. I'm thankful for that stoplight. I'm thankful for for the deputy, for the sheriff, the constable. I'm thankful for Heritage Park. I'm thankful for the bridge over the Brazos on 67 as you go out toward uh, Nemo, you know, driving toward Cleburne. I'm thankful for the state park. Do you see where I'm going with all of this? I'm exceedingly thankful. And so when April rolls around and I have to fill in the dreaded, I'm still learning the terminology, 1040, right? Is it 1040, the income tax return? But when I get something in the mail, I think it was November, uh, telling me I need to pay property tax. Although, again, the kink in the neck reappears with rejoicing, and with a glad heart, I pay my taxes. To not pay them, to refuse to pay them, to neglect to, to pay them, is to disobey the explicit command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me be even more frank. It is sub-Christian. It is sub-Christian. Paul, still in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, he tells us that this submission is expressed in another way. Not only by paying taxes and customs, but by rendering honor and respect to whom it is due. And so I'm free to disagree with government officials, right? We have someone here who works in a government office. I won't put her on the spot, but maybe I disagree with her over something at some time. But uh, I would never be disrespectful. Uh, I may disagree with the president, the highest office, on some of his policies, some of his decisions. I'm free to do that. I can disagree with someone uh, without uh, attacking them. I can seek to correct someone or seek to correct something while still supporting him. That is possible to do, friends. It is possible to disagree. It is possible to seek to correct while still supporting. What Paul forbids when it comes to submitting to government authorities, those in authority over us, what he commands is this. We are to give them their due respect and honor. One thing I do find shocking some of the radio programs in the afternoon, I listen once in a while. Just the shock jocks I, t- I turn on, I listen once in a while. Or even some of the things you see on the internet or some of the things you see on Facebook referring to a particular government official as a, as a jerk or something like that of that nature. No one else know what I'm talking about? I see it and hear it all the time. 
That is to disobey Scripture. As a matter of fact, I'll say it again, be very blunt. It is sub-Christian. We are to submit to those who are in authority over us. And we submit how? Firstly, by paying our taxes and customs. Yeah, we may not always agree with it. We may think there's a lot of abuse. We may think there's a lot of corruption. And yet in the larger scheme of things and God's plans for the nations and God's governance over the world through a divinely appointed institution known as human government, we acknowledge it for what it is and with grateful hearts we pay what is required of us. And not only that, while disagreeing, and at times disagreeing vehemently, at times disagreeing strongly, that's fine. But we can still support even those things we seek to correct. We render honor where honor is due. And we give respect where respect is due. That's the third implication. Fourth is this. Fourth implication of that command. Jesus requires, and this is going to seem like a contradiction in light of what I've just said, but there's no contradiction. Jesus requires civil disobedience. It's revolutionary. Jesus requires civil disobedience. What am I referring to? Think of his command. You render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and you render to God the things that are God's. What had Caesar done? He had taken to himself the term divine, the ascription divine. He had taken to himself the ascription high priest. The Lord Jesus is saying he has gone too far. You give the man what is his due. You have to pay the denarius, you pay the denarius. But you render to God the things that are God's. In other words, when human authority and divine authority clash and conflict, and at times they do, God commands us, the Lord Jesus commands us to civil disobedience. We are commanded to disobey. When the government requires of us or commands us to do something or refrain from doing something that God himself requires in his word, We have a calling and responsibility before God to disobey the government. Now, that could never happen. Well, Brennan, that could happen. Matter of fact, I mean, I'm not not a real pessimist, and I'm certainly not a doomsday prophet, but um, if the trajectory continues in this country, the trajectory just sort of continues, I see a day not too far off where it will be illegal for churches to hire and fire on the basis of sexual orientation. That is, is, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it is entirely conceivable that could happen. We pray it doesn't. But if something of that nature were ever to be implemented by human authorities, our moral obligation would be what? Civil disobedience. You render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And you render to God the things that are God's. He's preparing his disciples. The disciples hear him say it, right? They know whose face is on there, Tiberius. They know what he's claiming, divine and high priest. He's preparing his disciples for what? What is going to explode in just a few decades. Because the emperor is going to command what? Of every citizen within the Roman Empire. You worship me. And tens of thousands of Christians are going to be martyred. Why? Because of civil disobedience. They disobey. They refuse. Why? We will give Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. Here's your denarius. And we will give to God what belongs to God. Fifth implication is this. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. Fifth, final, and most important. In this command, 
Jesus calls for radical submission to God. It's the title for this sermon. You're probably wondering if I, ever, if I was ever going to get there. there. Here we are. Jesus calls for radical submission to God. You give God, you render to God what is God's. Here's the question. begs the obvious question. What is God's? What do I owe God? Friend, if you're an unbeliever, you don't identify yourself as a Christian. I mean, you've heard the gospel. I've explained it. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners from his wrath for his glory through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. You've never repented of your sin. You've never believed that. Here's what you need to hear. Your creator is speaking to you this very day. The God who created you in his image. You see, understand the parallel. He has asked for a denarius. They've presented the denarius. He's asked the question, whose likeness, whose inscription? Caesar's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Friend, here's the question. Now look at you. Whose likeness? Whose inscription do you bear? It is the very image of God. Though marred, though clouded, though darkened, though corrupted, it is still there. You were created by Almighty God and you bear His likeness and you bear His inscription. Render to God the things that are God's. It is you. Your entire being. He is your Creator. Oh, I remember all these years ago, 40 years ago, first boys' camp I ever went to, Mediba Bible Camp, way up in northern Ontario. And this cabin full of 12, 15, 5, 6-year-old boys. But before I went, my mother dutifully took all my shorts and my T-shirts and scribbled my name on every tag she could find, even sewed my name in the socks. Why? She was thinking of that poor counselor, that 17, 18-year-old boy, really, who was supervising this cabin full of kids because she knew at the end of the week that counselor was going to face a pile of clothing in the middle of that cabin, soiled and dirty, ketchup and mustard stained, soaked, and it was going to be his responsibility to make sure every t-shirt, every sock, yes, every piece of underwear got in its appropriate bag. And as he went through it, he looked where for the tag, looking for what? An inscription. Searching for what? A name. He then knew where it went. Friend, you bear a name, you bear a likeness, you bear an impress, you bear an image. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you render to God the things that are God's. He is speaking of you. Friend, if you're an unbeliever, the starting point for that is the gospel. The first step to surrender is the gospel. It is the good news that God saves sinners from his wrath for his glory. Through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. That is the first step in surrendering to the one who by right owns you. Christian, you're not off the hook. (coughs) We're not off the hook. Because that surrender never, it never ends. God owns his people. He owns us, yes, by creation. We bear his image. He owns his people by election. He chose us before we were even born. He owns his people by redemption. He bought us with the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns his people by regeneration. He's caused us to be born again by the Holy Spirit. 
He owns his people by adoption. He has made us part of his family, heirs of God, with all the rights and privileges and blessings associated with that family. He owns us by covenant. He has declared, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Daily, Christian, that calls for radical submission. Or we might rephrase it, radical surrender. Look at your life, search your life, past, present, future. You will not find one corner that belongs to you. You think of those puzzles you put together, a thousand pieces, and one puzzle somehow despairingly goes missing. Just one little puzzle. There isn't one little piece of puzzle in your life that belongs to you, Christian. Your spouse doesn't belong to you. Your children don't belong to you. Your house does not belong to you. Your money, your yearly earnings, it does not belong to you. Your physical health does not belong to you. Your, 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 your mental health does not belong to you. Your job does not belong to you. Your recreation does not belong to you. Your energy does not belong to you. The length of your life does not belong to you. Your time does not belong to you. Christian, you owe nothing. We are to give to God all that is His. That is a call to radical submission, radical surrender. I have been challenged along those lines throughout the course of my life. Uh, one of the most challenging occasions came more or less 10 years ago when I was teaching at college, and I'd never heard of John Piper. No idea who he was. And one of these 18-year-old kids came, hey, prof, you should, you should read this. Take a look at this. And it was this book here, Don't Waste Your Life. I've read a couple of books in my life, and some books in their entirety have such impact There are other books, maybe just a paragraph or a page. This book, yeah, the whole thing is good, but there is just one page, one page in this book that I've gone back to periodically over the past 10 years. I want to share it it with you this day as, as as we wrestle with this call and the implication of the words of the Lord Jesus, this call to radical surrender, radical submission. John Piper writes, in April 2000, Ruby Eliason, And Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed. The car went over a cliff. They were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? No, that was not a tragedy. That was glory. These lives were not wasted, and these lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. That's good enough if we were to stop right there. But Piper continued, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. This tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. When he was 59, she was 51. Now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, that was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious life, your God-given life, And let the last great work of your life 
before you give an account to your Creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, look at my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. We render to Caesar things that are Caesar's. Friend, you render to God Almighty the things that are God's. Every fiber of your being. He has stamped his impress upon you, made in the very image of God. And the good news of the gospel is this, that God saves sinners from the wrath, his wrath, for his glory through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. That is where surrender begins. And Christian, that is where surrender continues, at the foot of the cross as we behold what the Son of God surrendered for us, as we behold what the Son of God submitted Himself to for us, we hear His clarion call, you render to God the things that are God's. Our Father, we pray that You would make it so because we know in our own strength we are not up for this. We we get uh, distracted by so many things. Television holds our attention for countless hours. Sports teams send us on emotional roller coaster rides. We are enamored with the trivial. And we find ourselves daily seeking to find satisfaction in things which are fleeting and passing and temporary. And all the while, there you are, the great and glorious God who has made fellowship with you, who has made communion with you possible by the death and burial and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to take these things to heart. And by your Spirit, help us to put them into practice each and every day. This is an invitation to struggle. This is an invitation to fight. And we realize and we openly acknowledge, we don't pretend otherwise, that this is a daily fight. So we ask that you would help us to take these words to heart, that daily you would impress your glory upon us, that like Moses of old, we would understand that the passing pleasures of sin are not worth comparing to the reward that awaits us. In that matchless name of Christ, we do ask it. Amen.